Genesis chapter 35. If you need a Bible, put up your hand. The ushers are glad to get one to you. And uh, you could turn with us then to Genesis chapter 35. Continuing, of course, our study in the book of Genesis. We left off last week, or two weeks ago rather, with a study from Pastor Mark in Genesis 34 and uh, some issues that took place there in Shechem, right? There was some major dysfunction uh, out of the the fruit of, of Jacob's decision to stay in Shechem, to make his dwelling place in Shechem was that there was this, that uh, his daughter Dinah was violated. Uh, we see his sons try to take matters into their own hands, and, and that causes all sorts of problems. And the decision, though, comes back to staying in Shechem or making this dwelling place in Shechem. And that's where we'll begin with uh, chapter 35 in Genesis, and it will be verse 1 that we begin to read here. It says, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. We stop for a moment. We look at the fact that God said, Arise and go to Bethel. God already told him to go to Bethel. The Dinah incident the, the events of chapter 34 took place because Jacob was in Shechem, because he did not go to Bethel as God desired for him. There's this major important piece to God telling us to do something. What are we supposed to do with that? Listen, obey. But yet Jacob didn't. He, he had steps in the right direction, constantly taking, like we said, one step forward two steps back, or sometimes two steps forward, one step back, right? He's making progress in his life. He's making progress spiritually in his walk with the Lord, but he keeps kind of taking a step backward from time to time. And that was one of those things. He, he stayed in Shechem, and there was still this connection or this desire, this uh, aspiration of the things of the world that he desired, we talked about that in uh, chapter 33 and how this is Jacob was content in staying in Shechem at, at the end of chapter 33. Uh, and so now Jacob chosen to mix it up again with the world. And this is the constant problem in his life is keeps on going back to the ways of the world, the things of the world, the desires of the world and not with his hope and his eyes fixed on eternity. And that's, that's so much of what God is trying to do as he is a pilgrim passing through this life. And, and we can be reminded of that for ourselves. That is what God is trying to do, is to fix our eyes on him and get our eyes off of the things of this world, to get our eyes fixed on eternity. And sometimes God has to strip away the things of this world. Even the good things, sometimes God has to remove them so that we can have this tunnel vision, right? We want tunnel vision when it comes to looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And that's what we're going to see throughout this chapter tonight, chapter 35, is that God will bring these things, these representations of things being stripped away. Good things in life, but you know what, Jacob? You have to get your eyes off of the worldly things. And you have to get your eyes on eternity. Let that be a reminder to each one of us. We don't have to go through what Jacob went through, but yet we put ourselves through it sometimes, don't we? So Bethel. God tells him, arise, go to Bethel. Bethel was a place of great memories, of great godly moments, great godly things that took place there. It is the place where Jacob first met with God. It's the place where Abraham first staked his claim to Canaan. It's the place where Abraham came back to after he had backslidden in Egypt. He knew that that was the place he should go back to. And so to go back to Bethel for Jacob was to go back 
home, to the place that, that he had already experienced the presence of the Lord, to go to the place that God had intended for Jacob to go in the first place. Bethel is where Jacob should have been instead of making himself comfortable in Shechem. And we've learned from Jacob already in the past that the best way to rid ourselves of worldliness is to separate from it. We saw him do that with his uncle Laban. And we talked about how that was a good move. He finally was like, 20 years, I've had enough. And he cut off that relationship. He fled from Laban. And all of the manipulation and the lies and the things of the world that he was so caught up in. And he finally just said, you know what, I'm cutting it off. And I'm going to move on with life. That was the right thing to do. But yet he went back to places of worldliness in his life. And so he now has to be reminded, go to Bethel. Cut yourself off from the worldliness. Shechem was the worldliness. Terrible, terrible things happened to his family and with his family in Shechem. And so now it's time for him to be removed from Shechem. Don't hold on to it. We've studied this. We've seen this throughout Genesis. We saw it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We saw it with Lot and his wife. And what happened? God said, flee, get out of here. And, and what happens is that Lot's wife turns back and gazes upon the city that they dwelt in, the city that was a representation of the stronghold of this world. And as she turned back, then she turned into a pillar of salt. And that compromise is a constant, and we can relate to it so well in our lives because we'll take steps forward, but then we'll have little compromises perhaps, and we'll look back or we'll cling to sometimes the things of the world and have desires for the things of this world, and we miss out on the blessing that God has. And God will show up and have to wrestle us into submission as he did with Jacob sometimes. We should learn from Jacob. We don't have to fight against God. We don't have to go through all of the misery and all the loss. But yet sometimes that's what God must do so that we might walk with him, even if it's with a limp it's better that we walk with him. And where did it stem from, right? We learn from Jacob to put, you know, to separate from the worldliness. That's what he should be doing here. But this worldliness wasn't a decision that he made to say, I'm, I'm going to be worldly. It was just a little disobedience. It was that he didn't go to Bethel. He stopped, he stayed, he dwelt. He built himself a dwelling place in Shechem. But now God says, arise, go to Bethel, and what does it say? Dwell there. Dwell there. You already set yourself up in Shechem. I'm telling you, get out and go to Bethel, the place I already told you to go, the place where you know is, is a blessed place. You've experienced the presence of God in that place. Go there and set up your dwelling place there. You know what? It might not be the most exciting there might not be a strong economy in Bethel. There may not be all the desires and the amenities that you're looking for in life, but it's the place of blessing. It's the place that is in the will of God. So he says, make Bethel your home. And then further he says, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Egypt, Esau, your brother. Make an altar there to God. Be reminded of the presence of God in your life. Be reminded of the work of God in your life. Be reminded of the faithfulness of God in your life. Be reminded of who God is and what he's done. And then as you're, this is an altar. That's the purpose of this altar. To be reminded of how great God is. And then to resume, get back to this life of worship. 
Setting up the altar was to worship God. It was to get right with God and it was to be restored in fellowship with God. You see, it's, it's not too late. Jacob had brought lots of dysfunction on it throughout his life. And it would have been easy for him to say, you know what, I'm just going to throw in the towel on all this. But you can still come to that place where you met with the Lord and you could still experience the presence of God and you can make an altar, you can bring the sacrifice of praise, you can bring the sacrifice of your heart and get right with God. As he called Jacob, he calls you as well. Verse two, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their, the foreign gods which were in the, their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem, there is some serious house cleaning that's going on. Because it needed to happen. Needed to rid themselves of all these things. So we say, first he starts to say, put away the foreign gods. Now what does that tell us? That Jacob had allowed for foreign gods to creep into his life, into his home, into his family. And you know what? Maybe we don't have foreign gods, and we know that for sure his wife actually had the idols of her, of her uncle Laban, right? Or of her father, right? Of Laban. She took those idols. She was hiding them. And now Jacob has allowed for this to have a, somewhat of a stronghold in his home. You see, he has not raised his family. He has not influenced his family in the ways of the Lord. And maybe we don't have the physical idols, but we have idols. We have many idols, many things that we would put before God. And some of them are not even terrible things, but some of them are absolutely terrible things. Sinful things, worshiping other idols, other things that we put before God, and this idolatry, and, and sometimes the idolatry is just the attachment to the worldly things. Jacob struggled with that himself. But through his family, it was more than that. There was actual worship of other gods, of foreign gods, that they had welcomed in and adapted to understanding or to worshiping in a sense, and Jacob allowed for it. And he set a poor example in his home. But it had to be cleansed. Get rid of it. I don't know if you guys ever, you know, anybody's ever tried to go on like a diet where you're like, I need to get off of sugar. If you try to get off of sugar and you've got ice cream in the freezer, is that gonna work? No, it's a problem. I've experienced this, okay? There's ice cream. It's in the freezer. If I want to get off of sugar, I need to throw it in the garbage. Get the foreign god out of the house. You know, that's the reality, though. We have to clean house sometimes. We have to take care of things and get ourselves removed from the temptation, removed from the pagan worship that has taken place in our lives. And so that's what he's challenging his family to. It had to be cleansed. Further, he says, to change your garments. And garments were a representation of character in the Old Testament. And so what he's saying is, it's not just about the idols, it's not just about the worship of these gods, but it is about who we are. We need to change our ways. Because it takes more than just get rid of the ice cream out of the freezer. Right? It takes more than just getting rid of things. You have to get rid of things and you have to change your ways. But you have to do both. Sometimes we convince ourselves, I'm going to change. This time it's going to be different. I'm gonna change my ways. I'm gonna change my character, right? As he says, change your garments. I'm gonna change my garments. 
But I'm not going to get rid of the stuff. I'm not going to get rid of the things that I still enjoy to, you know, I, I like to cling to. You know, we had a conversation uh, with our pastors just yesterday about this issue that is going to become more and more realistic in New Jersey and throughout our country, the legalization of marijuana. And this idea of, well, I have freedom in that, people might say. You also have freedom from it. And we're not, are we walking in newness of life if we're indulging in that? But we try to justify. We try to excuse it. It's okay, I can, I can indulge in fill in the blank. But is that changing our garments? Thinking of garments, I'm, I'm thinking of, of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and he said, take off your grave clothes. And what is that translation? We've talked about it when we studied the Gospel of John, right? Take off your garments of death. And it's the same idea of what needs to happen throughout our lives as believers. It's the same thing that, that is spoken of in the New Testament that Paul would write in Ephesians to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? To put off the works of darkness, to put off the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need. And so there's this connection, this idea of these garments throughout the Bible. And here it is. Jacob says, put off, take off, change the garments. Change our ways. Put off the old man. Put off the old ways and put on Christ. Even down to, it says, then the earrings, right? They took the earrings out and they got rid of those. And the earrings were representation of even a connection to these pagan gods or pagan religions. And so what are they doing? They're taking those off. They're ridding themselves even of any connection to this pagan worship so that they could honor God. Verse five, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Here we see God's hand was upon Jacob and his family. Now why would there need to be the terror of God upon the cities? Because they, the, the sons of Jacob had stirred some things up in Shechem, right? The Canaanites were angry. They would have been after Jacob's family. But yet, the terror of God, the fear of God was upon them. Meaning, then, of course, the hand of God was upon them, this hand of protection. There was great protection over them. And he built an altar. His journey to Bethel was a dangerous journey. And Jacob could have probably given every excuse for why he should run, why he should flee. But God told him to go to Bethel. And at this point, he made a decision based on what he had learned, to obey God's direction and trust in God's protection. These two things, for so many decisions he made, those two things were out the window. But here he finally makes a decision, I'm gonna obey God's direction and trust his protection. There was a time that he didn't even know God's hand was there. Nobody knew it, but it was there. And there's times that he knew God's hand was there, right? So the reality is, God's hand is always upon you. And we can trust his protection. Take the step of faith. Do what he tells us to do. And sometimes we think, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard to get right with God. It's too hard to rid myself of all the things that I desire. It's too hard to purge the idols. It's too hard to change the garments. It's too hard to take out the earrings. 
I've invested so much in these garments and these earrings. Isn't that what we excuse? Isn't that some of the justification? But we need to trust God's protection. Walk in obedience, obey God's direction, and trust God's protection. Verse eight, then we continue. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alon Bakuth. Deborah was uh, Jacob's mother's nurse, or maidservant. And likely what had happened as they had reunited with Esau and, and with the family, and they had come across paths with uh, Deborah once again. And, and so here, uh, they brought her in, in a sense, as part of the family. This was a, a connection to, to his mother. It was a connection at the same time, though, to his old ways, to his past. And her death, which clearly had an effect on Jacob, the place he called Alon Bakuth, is, translates to oak of weeping. The tree there, she's buried under the terebinth tree. It's, it's a place of weeping or a place of sorrow. In this connection that had happened long ago, I mean, this is a woman who would have seen Jacob raised from a small boy and, and saw what all that had gone down. And there was a great connection here, but this connection too was Jacob holding on to this, this connection to his mother, the, the things of the world once again. And good things in life that still is it about us holding on to the things of the world and God needs to strip them away so all we have left is him. I remember years ago, um, we were living in a house, we were renting a house and our landlord had said, hey, I, I want to sell the house, or I forget what is exact. I think she said, she said, I want to sell the house, so you guys need to, to move on. Well, okay. And during that time, we were praying about we should go try to find a house to buy. Maybe the timing is now. And then we get that, as we're praying, the Lord answered our prayer and said, hey, you're going to get evicted here. Oh, man. That's not how I thought the Lord would answer the prayer. But he answered, right? So here we are. We're trying to scramble and figure things out. We had a temporary place that we were staying in in the meantime because we didn't find a, a, you know, a, a house to buy at that point. And we were scrambling. We were putting offers in on houses and missing out on one we missed out on. $500 we got outbid by. You know, I'm like, come on. We could have just done a little bit more, you know, and, and, but the Lord had a plan, and yet we're, trying, we're struggling to, to figure that out. And this, you know, one thing after another just kind of kept falling through, and I'm like, what's going on here? Are we going to be homeless? You know, I know, of course, you know, nobody would let us be homeless, but that's what it felt like. We're, we're, what are we supposed to do? And uh, there was this one house that we were convinced it was the Lord. He had brought this to us, and we're going to buy this house, and, and it's the perfect house for us. And, and we go through this whole process, and we put in the offer, and it was a short sale, and so there's a waiting period and the whole deal. And as we're waiting, I remember it was Thanksgiving, and I'm talking to my wife, and I was like, man, God is just so good, and you know what? If we don't get that house, it's fine. I just said to my wife, if we have to go live in a tent in somebody's backyard, praise the Lord. We have all we need because we have Jesus. Why did I say that? <laughs> Two days later, I get the call. I'm like, this is it. This is the call. We got the house. They're like, yeah, you didn't get the house. And I was like, I was ready to throw my phone up against the wall and I was upset, but then... I was reminded of the words that I said two days earlier where I'm like, if we have nothing, we can live in a tent, at least all we need is Jesus. And I was reminded of that. All we need is Jesus. And don't worry, we weren't homeless. We found a house a few months later and God provided and we're still in that house today. But the reality is that I had to be reminded 
And I had to kind of come to a place, and it wasn't, it wasn't great suffering we went through, but I had to come to a place where certain things just had to be stripped away so I could be reminded that I don't need that house. So I could be reminded that all I truly need is Jesus. But what about our kids? What about our spouses? What about our jobs? These things truly look at Jacob's life. And the things that he had to have stripped away so that he would recognize all that matters is his walk with God. And so here, even just this loose connection to his mother, this woman died as well, stripped away. Further, verse nine, then God appeared to Jacob again when he came, to, uh, came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, well, we'll get into that in a moment. Hold on. God blessed him. Let's stop there for a moment. God appeared again, which is a sign that this restoration of relationship is taking place. The presence of God is an indication that we have restoration. God showed up and appeared to him and blessed him. So there's restoration of relationship, and then through blessing, there's confirmation of that restoration. There's confirmation of obedience that he is walking in the will of God because God blessed him. Now, we don't want to get this confused. That blessing, general blessing, comes from walking in obedience because Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble, right? So we know there's going to be trouble from the world, and the blessings of the world is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the blessing from God, which is a blessing of promise, and we're going to get into that in a moment. This blessing has nothing to do with the things of this world. It has to do with who God is, what he does, the promises that he gives, and fixing our eyes on eternity. As we've been talking about in Ephesians, it's of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And you can't expect blessing when you're outside the will of God. Verse 10 then, God says to, your name is Jacob, and your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So we see, of course, he has a new name. A new name for a new man walking in obedience. Israel, meaning governed by God. God had already given him this name in chapter 32. God told him this already. Now he is reminding him of this name, that he is governed by God, and he's calling him by it. In a sense, is what God is saying to Jacob. You see, that's what I'm talking about. That obedience, that's Israel rather than Jacob. The, the sneaky guy, the conniver. No, now that's Israel walking in obedience. And what he's doing is calling him to walk in further obedience, to walk in this newness of life, and then to produce fruit, be fruitful and multiply. There's a great promise that would come from his lineage, and it's Jesus but now producing fruit in newness of life is speaking more even of spiritual fruit that was to come, fruit of righteousness rather than fruit of the flesh. And prior to this, much of what Jacob had produced in his life was the flesh. Further then, in verse 12, he says, The land which I gave Abraham Isaac, uh, and Isaac I give to you and your descendants after you I give this land. 
Then God went up from him into the place where he had talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. So further in this promise is the land. And this is the land that was already promised to Abraham, his grandfather, and promised to Isaac, his father, and now this promise is passed on. God had already given this promise, and now he, he confirms this promise for Jacob as well because of obedience. And what God has been sa- is saying here to Jacob, you are Israel. Walking in this obedience is what I've been waiting for so that you can experience the promise, that you could experience the blessing that I have to pour out on you. And that blessing is the fruit that's going to come from you, the descendants that are gonna come from you, the lineage of promise that's gonna come from you, the Messiah, and further, the land that I already promised to your grandfather, to your father, but you weren't ready for it because you were walking in the ways of the world. And then God went up from him, it says. God had appeared and now departed. God came for a purpose. God was waiting for this opportunity. That's what I see here. God shows up, blesses him, and is like, peace out, man. I'm out of here. We're good. All set. That's that's what it looks like to me. You see what God shows up just to pour out this blessing on him, just to give him the promise that he had been wanting to give him all along. But Jacob was not walking in obedience. He was still Jacob. Taking step forward, step back. Step forward, step back. So God came to bless him and speak this promise, and then he left. He was on a mission. And so then Jacob then pours out this drink offering. Verse 15, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. He takes this this wine, and, and it's customary that wine would be poured out in sacrifice on an altar to the Lord. God's blessing was evident, so Jacob's worship had to be evident. And he poured out, in customary form, he poured out the wine, the oil. He made this altar to the Lord in worship to the Lord because the blessing was clear. He recognized where the blessing came from. Do we recognize where the blessings come from? Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good. Not just some of the good. Everything that we have is a blessing from God. But the real blessing of all that we need is that of eternity. God gives us the extra blessings with the roof over our head, with our family, with the things that we have. That's, it's tremendous. But the true blessing that he wants our, our hearts and minds to be fixed on is eternity. And would we say that that is enough? Would we be content in the cross? and the resurrection, and the life that he's already given us. As he says, my grace is sufficient. Further then, verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to the Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Ani. 
But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So here now we see more loss. He had lost the only connection he had to his mother and the maidservant Deborah. And now he lost his beloved wife, Rachel. Jacob left Bethel without a prompting from God. He got the blessing from God, and then he's like, here we go. They journeyed from Bethel. Not a good move. Once again, taking matters into his own hands, and God told him to dwell there. Not just stop off there. Not just take a break there. Not just hang out. Don't just go on vacation in Bethel. Don't just go on a missions trip to Bethel. Don't just go on the the church retreat to Bethel. Dwell there in the place that you know you will find the presence of the Lord. Dwell there. But Jacob didn't stay. He left, and that led to more sorrow. His attachment, once again, to worldliness led to more sorrow. Out of it came the name of his son, Ben-Ani, the son of sorrow. That's what his wife, Rachel, called him. In, literally, in her dying breath, called him that, the son of sorrow. That this has brought sorrow. But Jacob decides to call him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand, which would mean that it's a son of honor, a son of strength. Most commonly, people are right-handed. It was actually customary to make sure people were right-handed. Sorry to all you lefties out there. I know Mike McNerland's very upset right now. (laughs) Jesus still loves you, Mike. So do we. (laughs) But it was customary. Even for, even for generations, it was customary, being forced to just write with your right hand and not with your left and, and taking things out of the left hand. This was going on even up until the last 40, 50 years in the world. But now, that's Jacob's perspective to try to claim a sort of redemption over this son of sorrow that... He would say, no, he's the son of my right hand. He's the son of strength. He's the son of honor. You realize all the ambitions of his life were being stripped away. Deborah, his last connection to his mother. Rachel, his beloved wife that he worked so hard for. He strived for this wife. He worked 14 years for Rachel. And now his heart is broken and his hope is is being set on things above where, listen, Christ alone, the son of suffering, Christ who was acquainted with sorrow, Christ who truly alone sits at the right hand of God, is a fulfillment, brings fulfillment. Christ is all we need even though he's making this claim to say Benjamin is the honored one, the son of strength. But no, it's not. Benjamin is the son of my right hand. No, Jesus is at the right hand. Then Israel, verse 21, journeyed. And pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Reuben, his son, his oldest son, sinned 
against him. A very grievous sin as we read it. And we're reminded here, dysfunction will easily beget dysfunction. Decisions that Jacob had made, things that Jacob had allowed for of the pagan worship, the idol worship, the the idol gods that they had collected as a family, now what's the fruit of that? His oldest son sleeping with his own concubine. Having a concubine in the first place, a bad idea. And so now we see this dysfunction begets more dysfunction. It can happen so easily. A life of pursuit of worldly and fleshly things will produce more worldly and fleshly things. That life set up his son for failure. Now, of course, Reuben, it's, not, it's, it's his fault. He made the decision, of course. But the compromise in their family, the compromise in their life, truly set Reuben up not to succeed. And we need to be mindful of that for our children. We, we like to say, do as I say, not as I do. But they're going to do what you do. Your kids, the next generation, the young people in church that are watching you, they're going to do what we do. They're going to handle themselves the way that we handle ourselves, even if we tell them, don't do this. I'm, sometimes I just get to driving the car, and I don't put my seatbelt on right away. I'm like, it's fine. I'll put it on as we're driving down the road. I pull out of the driveway, and I'm like going like this, you know, while I'm driving. It's fine. That's, you know, in my mind. That's okay. But what do I do when I get in the car? Because I'm going to make sure my kids are safe. I'm like, guys, buckle up. You know, and I'm doing it after I tell them to buckle up. Do as I say, not as I do. I don't want them to copy that. Just buckle your seatbelt. It's not that hard, you know? And sometimes we get halfway down the road. I'm like, why don't you have your seatbelt buckled? And my Caleb's like, Daddy, your seatbelt's not buckled. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm trying to make sure yours is, you know? <laughs> but they're going to do what we do. We need to be mindful of it. And it says here that Israel... It calls him Israel here in the scripture for the first time. It refers to him as Israel. Verse 21 and verse 22. He, he journeyed, he pitched his tent, and he heard about it. Israel heard about it, and that's all we know. He didn't do anything about it. But the fact that it calls him Israel gives us indication that now he is governed by God. And he heard about it, about Reuben. He didn't do anything about it because he knew that God would handle it. He got his eyes fixed on the promise. Now, he would be totally justified in everyone's mind to deal with his son on this matter. Yet, he had to lay it at the Lord's feet. And man, sometimes we, we get real upset about things. And we think, man, I'm totally justified. My neighbor, you believe what my neighbor did? They knocked my fence down, or they did this, or that. I'm justified. I'm going to take him to court. I'm gonna... Is that the right thing? Is that what we should do? Or should we lay it at the Lord's feet and see what the, how the Lord wants to govern us? rather than how we think we should govern somebody else. And that's just an example. And I'm not saying you should never, you know, talk to your neighbor and say, hey, you knocked my fence over. But we oftentimes think that we are justified in taking it to somebody. And we would look at this and say, man, Jacob had full justification to confront his son, yet... 
He was governed by God. He allowed for God to deal with it. He trusted that God would deal with it. And God always deals with sin. Always. He's going to deal with sin. And he did. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, through their sin, seemingly disqualified themselves from the blessing of Abraham. So it would come to the fourth son. His name was Judah. And don't you know that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from the line of Judah? What happened? Well, some dysfunction begot more dysfunction, and the sinful decisions missed out on the blessing. Judah would bring the lineage of promise, the Messiah, the great blessing, the great promise. Verse 23 then, now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him at Paddan Aram. The sons of Jacob. And by most accounts, this was a completely dysfunctional family. Yet, God redeems. God uses people. We're going to see for the rest of the book of Genesis a man named Joseph and how God used him in tremendous ways and how he's this amazing picture, a type of Christ that we see here in the Old Testament. And yes, of course, we know, as we already established, the Messiah would come from the line of Judah. So yes, dysfunction begets more dysfunction, but God is faithful. God uses them by his grace to redeem and restore generations through faith. That's what can tear down the walls. Faith. Walking with Jesus. Generations that would break through the walls of despair. So that we are not, none of us can claim to be a product of our environment. We have a responsibility to walk with Jesus. And this is a great picture of grace over these 12 sons, over this family, over the dysfunction, the pagan worship and the sinful decisions. That God shows himself faithful over and gives grace and uses them still. Verse 27 then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. So Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac's death. Now, Jacob thought he would never see his father again. But here he is, 20 years later, and he goes, and his father dies at this point, at 180 years old, as the Lord allowed. And now Esau and Jacob were united here by the death of their father. But this here, and as we've seen these markers throughout this chapter of things that have been stripped away. This is the last tie that bound Jacob to earthly things, to worldly things. All these things stripped away from This is a rough chapter for Jacob. The maidservant of his mother, his beloved wife, his father, the relationship with his son even perhaps, his his concubine, all these things, his total dysfunction, all the things, the aspirations of his life are being just pulled away, 
stripped away, moved aside so that all he has is his walk with God. God was trying to get his attention for a long time. God saying to him, he's waiting to give him the blessing. Jacob, I just want you. And he says the same to us. I just want fellowship with you. All that he has left is his walk with God and to fix his hope on eternal things. So let us not go the way of Jacob, constantly fighting against what God desires for us, bringing dysfunction upon ourselves and perhaps even our families, constantly binding ourselves to the things of the world so that God has to strip away the things for us to realize that all we have and all we need is him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how challenging your word can be sometimes. Lord, it cuts to the heart sometimes, but we thank you for that. We thank you that you work in our hearts. And sometimes, Lord, you need to strip away the things that we desire that are not godly, the things that we desire that are not within your will. And so, Lord, tonight we just... We rid ourselves and we just ask for you to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you rid us of the flesh that we would make no room, no provision for the flesh, but we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that we would be overflowing with the Holy Spirit to fulfill the works of the Spirit, to walk in love, and to see you glorified in and through our lives. We want to honor you. We need you. We need more of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.